Well, it was St. Augustine who said, let every good and true Christian understand that wherever truth may be found, which should be on the next slide there, Josh. There you go. Let every good and true Christian understand that wherever truth may be found, it belongs to his master. Now, let that sink in just a minute. Simply said, everything that is true belongs to, and I'm going to suggest even comes from God. Later, John Calvin said it this way, all truth is from God because God is a God of truth. Today, you're more likely to hear it this way, um, all truth is God's truth. That has enormous implications. Let me elaborate. Most of us would agree that everything in the Bible is true. Now, I know that there are lots of accusations out there of supposed errors and contradictions in the Bible. I love when people say that. I just hand them one. Can you, say, can you show me one? That usually shuts them up. But, but the, the Bible is God's Word and is therefore without error and can be fully trusted. All Scripture is God-breathed, every bit of it, and is profitable. So, for example... While it is not a history book, it's a theology book, but while it's not a history book, inasmuch as, as it records history, it is accurate. Not a science book, but inasmuch as it speaks to science, it is correct. So everything in the Bible is true because it is God-breathed. It springs from our, from our true God. But we would most also agree that while everything in the Bible is true, not everything that is true is in the Bible. And don't let that throw you. Everything in the Bible is true, but not everything that is true is in the Bible. If, for example, I don't want to put you into geometric shock, especially as summer approaches, but most of us learned Pythagorean's theorem in high school, A squared plus B squared equals C squared, or the sum of the squares of the sides of a right triangle equal the uh, square of the hypotenuse. All right, come on back. <laughs> That's true, but it's not in the Bible. You know, how about Mount Everest is the highest mountain uh, in the world, and the, the, the Pacific is the largest ocean, and hydrogen has an atomic number of one. All true, but it's not in the Bible. So again, all truth is God's truth. But what massive implications does that maxim carry? Pastor John Piper takes that statement a step further. And I believe that he's right when he suggests, alongside all truth is God's truth, we need to say, now, now follow this, all truth exists to display more of God and awaken more love for God. Truth is not just out there for you to get smarter. Truth is out there to reveal God to us so that we will become more and more impressed with God. 
This means, he says, uh, Piper goes on, that knowing truth and knowing it is God's truth is not a virtue until it awakens desire and delight in us for the God of truth. All truth, doesn't matter where it is, in here, out here, all truth reveals something to us about God. We are supposed to look at truth and go, wow, God is amazing. Even Pythagorean's theorem, you're supposed to look at that and go, you're sitting in geometry. You're supposed to look at that and go, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive. Who figured that out? Pythagoras? No, God. He's sitting in heaven one day and he says, you know, let's do that. It'll be really cool when they figure that out, that A square B, that'll be cool. It's not just so that you have something to be tested on. Consider all creation, all the universe is impressive. But trying to grasp the intricacies of creation, whether you're talking about biology or chemistry and cells and atoms and molecules and all that, or, or you're trying to, to look at the vastness and magnificence of the universe, all of that is ultimately meaningless if it doesn't lead us to know and worship God. You see, this is the problem of Romans chapter 1. Although all of creation points to the glory of God, humankind has sought to suppress that knowledge of God and His glory. We do sit in class and go, ho-hum, what does this mean? The psalmist says the heavens are continually, always declaring the glory of God. We sang it in the first song we sang this morning. Even the mountains bow down. This truth, all truth rooted in God, this desire for and delight in Him, I'm going to suggest should also awaken a passion to obey. Should awaken a passion to be like Him, not to be Him. That's the problem of Romans chapter 1. Not to be him, but to be like him. So, in other words, just knowing truth is not enough. Figuring out that hydrogen has an atomic number of one does not mean a whole lot unless you see the creator behind that truth. And so then what we have, because people are suppressing the truth about God, what we have is we've taken astronomy and turned it into astrology. Astronomy is supposed to take us and make us go, wow, look at God. Look what he did. He's big. He's enormous. He's incredible. Because all truth is God's truth. But knowing truth is God's truth is not enough. Truth should awaken worship. We must, Piper suggests, align that knowledge of truth with the desire to know and delight in God and, and to obey Him. I, I agree. And I also want to suggest that Piper was not the first one to come up with this idea. It was Paul in his letter to the Philippians. So you can turn to Philippians chapter 4 this morning in our continuing study of the book. The first half of chapter 4 has been a little bit disjointed over the past few weeks because of our schedule, which is a bit unfortunate because it actually all goes together. 
Remember, the challenge facing the church at Philippi was one of division. We don't know what the issue or the issues were, but when Paul got to chapter 4, he addressed two women by name, Yodia and Suntuke, who appear to be the leaders of, of the factions, this fighting in the church, and having called then the church to stand firm in the Lord in verse 1, he urges these women in verse 2, live in harmony, will you please just get along? Then in verse 3, he pleads with the church, very specifically a leader in the church, to do whatever was necessary to help the these women stop bickering. And I use the word bickering on purpose because if it was some significant sin issue, he would have called them out. He would have named it. He would have dealt with it. But it seems to have been this division over something nonsense. And from there, Paul did what he usually did when he was coming to the end of a letter. He starts giving, remember, a number of commands. Do this, do that, do this. And, and as I've been saying all along, if we're not careful, we will miss the connection of these commands to unity. He has just urged the church to reconcile. Will you please just get along? Then he says, listen, here are some things that you can do to assist you in your pursuit of unity. Yes, um, he and we can broaden the applications of the commands, but it's still vitally and inextricably linked to unity. Verse number four, he said, rejoice in the Lord always, because if you rejoice always in the Lord, if you keep your eyes focused on Christ and his gospel, instead of these petty differences, then jealousies and divisions will likely cease. Second verse five, he said, let your gentle spirit be known to all. The Lord is near. We saw that the word gentle means gracious gentle, kind, or, or my favorite, sweet reasonableness. So the opposite of gentleness is to be harsh or rude. That'll, that'll promote unity, harshness, rudeness. We saw that Jesus was described as gentle. If we want to be like Jesus, then we've got to pursue gentleness. And then we are also finding, this is very important, it's very important, don't miss this connection, the number of these commands are rooted in the filling of the Holy Spirit. What do I mean? Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So is gentleness. You cannot be filled with joy, the joy he's talking about, without the filling up and control of the Holy Spirit. So as you seek to fulfill these commands that he's giving us, these virtues, we've got to remember that we start with an intentional surrender to and filling by the Holy Spirit. Because, now listen, this is, here's the connection. Because pursuing truth or virtue apart from God and His gospel is ultimately meaningless, fruitless, and frankly impossible. There are all kinds of ethics classes out there. there are all kinds of, there's all kinds of virtue teaching out there. The only problem with it is you can't do it which is why you need the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Christ. It brought us to the third command a couple of weeks ago, verses 6 and 7. Be prayerful. Be, be anxious for nothing, but instead, the opposite of nothing, but in everything, by prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. The result, another fruit of the Spirit. Peace. The peace of God which surpasses all Human comprehension, every, all your human intellect that you're trying to muster up, 
That peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And we noted that the, the hearts and minds were plural because the concept of biblical peace or shalom is always a community or social concept. So he's saying instead of this disunity, instead of fighting, instead of division, pray. Pray for whatever needs you have. Pray for whatever needs people have. Pray for whatever needs your opponents have, and you watch and see if God does not grant community peace in the midst of this anxious division. This brings us to Paul's last two commands this morning. Be intentionally, you'll see that, be intentionally thoughtful and be imitators in verses 8 and 9. Look at it with me, verse 8. Finally, brothers, sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell, ponder, think, focus, meditate on these things. In fact, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. As I suggested earlier, Paul is following his typical pattern as he gets to the end of his letter and lists a number of commands here intended to assist in unity. Let's review the commands. Be joyful or rejoice, be gentle, be prayerful. Uh, This morning, be intentionally thoughtful and be imitators. Starting with that fourth command then, be intentionally thoughtful. And don't miss the connection with the end of the last verse. Since God's peace sets itself up as a garrison around our collective hearts and minds, around our community, it will also change the way we think. We are no longer dwelling on anxious thoughts. We are no longer, by the way, dwelling on negative thoughts. And this will leave room for right thinking. So, verse 8. Think about these things, right things, and then verse 9, he'll say, nah, a little bit more than that. Put these things into practice. In other words, don't just think rightly and truthfully, but allow that thinking to change what you do. Now, I want you to stop and think about what Paul is saying here. There was division in the church, people lining up behind these two women, no doubt lots of accusations and gossip and hurtful things that were being both thought and spoken because that's the way people act who are in the flesh. That's the way people act who are not filled with the Spirit. We are, by nature, negative People. I'm not even talking about pessimism and optimism here. I'm talking about the way that most people naturally tend toward negative thinking, especially with, the, uh, with those with whom we're having conflict. For in conflict with somebody, there's disunity, there's division. I can tell you all kinds of reasons why that person's a jerk. Paul says, having intentionally chosen to rejoice in the gospel, having intentionally been gentle, having intentionally putting, put away anxiety that's from this division and put on prayer. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop with the negative 
thoughts, and I want you to put on right thinking, even about them. Now, verse 8 is, is actually a very interesting verse for Paul, and it, actually, it takes us back to our introduction. You see, many of the words that Paul uses here in this list are not found in his other letters. Some are not even found in the New Testament. But one place they are found uh, is in Greek literature. In fact, many of these virtues are found in Greek virtue lists and were pursued by Greeks and Romans at this time. This has caused lots of discussion about why would Paul borrow from Greek thought to encourage Christian thinking? What's wrong with him? Because all truth is God's truth. And when it is rightly apprehended, and it is brought into a Christian worldview, the result will be worship and, and, and obedience. See, there are a couple of things we have to keep in mind. First, just because it's Greek, that, that means not found in Paul's writing or even in the New Testament, doesn't mean it's not true. All truth is God's truth. Everything that is true ultimately springs from Him who is true. So Paul, I need you to get what Paul is saying here. This, if you were reading this in the Greek and you were living at that particular time, this would have jumped off the page and slapped you. Paul is actually saying, I want you to look around, appreciate, and even pursue those secular virtues around you, you know, the ones that are worth pursuing. Uh, now, do you know what the word secular means? The word secular, the definition of the word secular means without God. Here's my question. Is there anything that is truly secular? Is there anything that is truly without God? That's the point. All truth is God's truth and should be rightly apprehended and applied. You're not just sitting in class learning stuff that is meaningless. You're, you're, you're learning stuff in as much as it's right. You're learning stuff that comes from a God of truth. Think about that the next time you're figuring out the hypotenuse of a right triangle. Second, Paul qualifies this Greek thought, Greek thought that he brings to the Scripture in verse 9. Do these things in as much as you have learned and received and heard and seen them in me. Don't just copy the Greeks. Ponder those things that are consistent with a Christian worldview and way of life. So with all that in mind... This is what he's doing. He's taking this Greek virtue list, and he says, now let's look at it Christianly. And we can do that every day, folks. We can take what is true out there, and we can think about it Christianly. Look at verse 8. He says, if you dwell on, if you ponder, if you meditate on these things, these two will help you get along with each other. This too will help in your pursuit of unity. It will change the way you think. It will change the way you act. Again, people are generally negative. And when we think of others, especially those we don't like, people that we're struggling with, we can think all kinds of negative thoughts about them. We can tell, I can tell you all about their shortcomings and their failures, all kinds of reasons that we should, in fact, be in conflict with them. Instead, Paul says, I want you to think on these things. Yes, yes. If there is sin, we talked about this a few weeks ago, if there is sin, then we need to deal with the sin in the camp. 
But, but, but we're not supposed to be focusing, meditating, and dwelling on these things. And, and yes, there's a broader application with life in general. But in your relationships with each other, in your homes, and in the church of Jesus Christ, ponder these things. You will not naturally do this. You will only do this supernaturally. It doesn't mean that we're to have a naive view of life, like that everything is okay, everything is true, and everything is right, and everything is pure, and everything is lovely. Most of us have lived long enough to know that everything is not right. Everything is not lovely. Nor does it mean, again, that we ignore, the rea- ignore reality and only think about pretty stuff. I'll only think about flowers. What it means is that we choose to focus our attention on things that are right. We don't focus on things that are unlovely or evil or negative. So Paul here uses six adjectives, follows with two nouns, which seem to sum up those six adjectives or six virtues. And he, and he, and he uses words or phrases in a crescendo to kind of get our attention. Whatever is, whatever is, whatever, six times. If there is any, if there is any, dwell, meditate, focus on these things. Look at what he tells us. Look at the words that he uses for us to focus our thoughts, which will transform our behavior upon. First, whatever is true. Now, what we're doing is we're taking these Greek virtues, right? Most of our society would agree with these virtues, but we're going to think of them Christianly. Search for truth in its most comprehensive sense. And for Paul, what is true finds its ultimate source in God and its ultimate source in the gospel. So Paul says, think on whatever things conform to God, His character, His gospel, as opposed to that which is false, that which is filled with lies and deceit. Second, whatever is honorable. Interesting word. Speaks of that which is noble. And listen, listen, young people, listen. That which is noble, serious, dignified, and worthy of respect. Yeah, there you go. Eliminates most of our conversations. Think about noble and honorable things as opposed to that which is ignoble, dishonorable, and even vulgar. We're supposed to lift our minds to that which is lofty and majestic, away from that which is cheap and tawdry and flippant and sarcastic. He just eliminated all the sitcoms. Third, whatever is right, as with that first word truth, right or just, is, is defined by God and His character. Think on things that conform rightly to the character of God and His righteousness. Now listen, sometimes the question is asked, sometimes the question is asked, is law... Is it right or wrong to do something because it is right, inherently right, and inherently wrong? The answer is right, righteousness, justice conforms to the character of God. So when God says don't do something, it's because it it opposes His character. So think about those things that are right. Fourth, whatever is uh, oh, oh, back to right. It, it includes those customs, again, in society, 
norms of behavior that are right and well-ordered. That's the idea. Fourth, whatever is pure, that word carries significant moral implications. Dwell on, ponder, think on those things. Listen to me, on those things that are pure as opposed to those things that are immoral and evil. Fifth, whatever is lovely, very interesting word, not found in the New Testament. It has to do with what people, generally speaking, consider lovable, that which is pleasing, agreeable, delightful. Concentrate on those things that even the world admires. Not everything that the world admires or considers lovely is necessarily wrong. One author I was reading suggests uh, that might refer to a Beethoven symphony or the works of Mother uh, Teresa in Calcutta. Uh, We can pretty much all agree those are lovely, admirable things. Maybe not Beethoven. Sixth, whatever is of good repute. This is not necessarily a synonym for lovely, but it falls in the category of admirable virtues. Not necessarily in the moral sense, but it is conduct that is well spoken of, even by the general population. What came to mind when I was thinking about this, uh, when we're talking about um, what is of good repute? CNN heroes. You know how they do that every year? You know, they come up with people that are doing really, really admirable, really, really good stuff, and then they let us vote. How can we vote? Because we know that which is admirable. He says, I want you to think Christianly about that. I want you to think about those things that are of good repute. Praiseworthy, commendable is the idea. Now, those last two words on the list, number five and six, lacked any specific moral value. So Paul adds a couple of other ideas. He says, if there is any excellence, another word that's not found in uh, any of Paul's letters. In fact, this word is often translated virtue in those Greek lists. Paul, again, is borrowing from culture and putting his Christian twist on it. The word speaks of moral excellence, Uh, anything that is excellent, morally excellent, of excellent character, of exceptional virtue, worthy of approval and recognition. Think about those things. It, It might mean that you don't spend the whole evening watching I don't want to offend anybody, Fox News, okay? It might mean that we focus, choose to focus our attention on that which is good. Finally, if there's anything worthy of praise, speaks of anything that is generally praised by others, that which is worthy of praise, approval, recognition. When brought into the Christian arena, it speaks of ethical judgment, those things that find consistency with God's own ethic, that which is praiseworthy. So I want you to look at that list of words. Paul expects Christians to observe and even pursue these excellent qualities. You know, the world generally would affirm this list. Paul says, I want you to look around at culture and uh, pursue these excellent qualities. But I want you as followers of Christ to ponder, concentrate, dwell, meditate on those things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely of good repute, things that are excellent and praiseworthy. And I want you to think of that through the grid of that which is ultimately true through Christ himself. 
So what is this? Okay, that's a lot of words. What does that look like? What's that look like? Look at that list. Well, the world would affirm this. This is not what they do. Let's be honest. It eliminates much of what we watch on various media outlets. TV, the movies, YouTube, or the Internet. Eliminates much of what we listen to on iTunes or the radio. Eliminates much of what we hear at the office. Maybe what we even participate in in our workplaces. People tend to focus, even though they affirm this, they tend to focus on the opposite. Things that are more juicy and depraved and degraded and negative. Paul says, don't do that. It's an old saying in computer science, garbage in, garbage out. Make your focus God and His gospel and those things that are consistent with His character. Pastor Kent Hughes encourages us to look at that verse, verse 8, and think of the opposite. Look at it. Finally, brothers, sisters, whatever is untrue, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is unjust, whatever is impure, whatever is unlovely, whatever is uncommendable, whatever, if if there's anything not morally excellent, if there's anything unworthy of praise, do not think about those things. Why do we do that? Don't think about those things. This is not consistent with the character of God. Leading his last command, be imitators, very quickly, our conclusion. Be imitators. He already has told us this a couple of times in this letter. Back in chapter 3, he said, brothers and sisters, join in following my example. Observe those whose walk, uh, who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. In other words, follow me in as much as I follow Christ. So here he says, the things that you have learned and received, and those words speak of his teaching and the traditions that he passed on, Things that you have heard and seen, not only did you hear them, you saw them. You saw them lived out in me. That's what I want you to practice. In verse 8, he said, dwell on these things. Now he says, those things that you are dwelling on, that you've learned and observed and, and heard and seen, I want you to practice them. Live them out. You've been given a model by which to live. Imitate these things. And one author summarizes these two verses with these really good words. It's kind of deep, but look at what he says. Paul does not simply advocate a pursuit of popular morality. All right? We're not supposed to be copying the world. We're supposed to be observing what they do and think of it Christianly. We're not just pursuing popular morality. He qualifies and elevates the virtues in his continuation in the next verse, verse 9, and redefining these virtues in terms of his teaching and example. Now listen, ultimately life in Christ brings to fulfillment the highest moral aspirations in the surrounding culture. It takes that which the culture even acknowledges as good, it brings it in, and it elevates it to the highest degree in Christ. As a result, the peace of God will be with you. You see that? Verses 6 and 7, he said, if you're, if you're not anxious for anything but you pray, peace of God will be with you. He says it again. Verse 8, think rightly. You're looking for peace? Think rightly, intentionally thinking on godly virtues and acting them out. Peace. The God of peace 
will be with you. And remember, if, if we come through this list of commands and you just, you know, suck your stomach in, stick your chest out, pull your boots up and say, all right, I've got to... I've got to do these things, and you don't remember that it's going to require the God of peace being with you. It's going to require the filling of the Holy Spirit. Then I've messed up. God of peace will be with you and enable you to do this. And guess what? You is plural. The peace of God will be a community peace with you all. Let's stand for prayer.